0: Hello, and welcome to Odds and Evenings, a podcast about mathematics, puzzles, numbers and games. My name is Alex, with you as always, and uh, with me as always is... Alaric. Hello. Hello. How have you been since the last time we recorded?
1: Um, I've I've been okay. I I don't know. I've been teaching kids some maths.
0: On your typical scale of, like, mathematical bamboozlement, have you been bamboozled a lot, or have you got your hands pretty much well around everything you've been tackling in your day-to-day life?
1: Well, I'm not sure if we're allowed to mention what time of year it is, because this may be released way into the future, but it's a time of year where suddenly a lot of maths websites put out a lot of puzzles and so my life has been consumed by doing those sort of things. A a lot of them are designed for student age sort of people and uh, I feel like I've been um, shepherding them through things rather than doing maths myself. Uh, Uh, I'm looking forward to getting my hands on some actual maths.
0: I've been doing some Excel modelling at work, so to me, math is just, and this thing is multiplied by this thing, (laughs) and then that gets divided by two, and then stuff like that. So um, for me, it's been arithmetic world. So uh, last week, we had our special Christmas episode And one of the things that we talked about was the idea of wrapping a present such that there's always a cross on each side. I don't mean a cross as in the ribbon goes across the other ribbon, but one in which it does that thing when it kind of does two right angles and they intertwingle. You know what I'm talking about? Do you remember that? I do. Yep. We had a challenge to you as listeners to go away and, and try it for yourself such that you could try and wrap a present or a package, or whatever you wanted to wrap, uh, as long as it was cuboid with uh, an intertwingly right angly thing on every single side.
1: So, did you work on this problem? Because I did.
0: I I worked on it conceptually, but I didn't sort of wrap things up.
1: So, I managed to get a solution manually using a piece of ribbon around a Rubik's cube. Um, okay. I also got an email from a student called Mark Pepper, who um, sent me a photo of, again, a Rubik's Cube with a piece of ribbon around it. Um, I don't have any, I haven't been able to find out how many solutions there are.
0: Right. I have a new way to potentially think about this problem, Well, two new ways to more abstractly think about this problem. Yep. Um, So we started by thinking about it in terms of doing a grand tour uh, around the Rubik's Cube, Okay. Uh, such that you can never, if you enter one face, you can never leave the other face at the opposite end. Yep. And we were sort of saying, oh, and then you go to the front face and then you go to the back face. If you change your perspective such that you're a little person on a motorcycle riding around this cube. Okay, love it. You can start to think about it instead of faces, but the direction in which you turn. And okay. And so therefore you can reduce solutions to left, right, left, right, left, right.
1: Okay. Yeah, I like that notation better.
0: So that helps in finding solutions, or at least in in enumerating solutions. And so once I'd thought about left, right, left, right, uh, I was kind of thinking actually that could lead us to a potential bounding of solutions.
1: Okay, I see. Because so if you can't do s- three of the same turn in a row. Exactly. Because you, if you go left, 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 then you've made a small loop and you're back where you started. Yep. So you can only do at most two in a row.
0: Yes. So this is a, a point at which I got to in which that might be a particularly good notation. But then I thought a little harder. And okay. then I realized that actually we don't care about the journey at all. All we care about is that each face has the right angle intertwinly thing. And so I was thinking about all the possibilities of what's on each possible face.
1: Ah, so if you had a big stamp and you were drawing onto a cardboard box and your stamp drew two right angles interconnected... Yeah. There's two different ways it can do it.
0: Yes. And there's two different ways of doing a crossness, which we don't want and we exclude. Yep. So therefore, I present to you an upper and lower bound... (laughs) <laughs> to the number of solutions Yep We know that there's one solution that you made Yep We know that there's also a mirror version of that solution Yep One in which all your lefts are right and so on If you're the motorcycle
1: Okay, I agree
0: You can also have two possible different intertwinglees on each side So therefore Yes There's an upper bound to the number of solutions Which we know is not even an upper bound Because I can already think of a wrong one
1: but 2 to the 6.
0: 2 to the 6, which is 64. Yep. So there is 64 or less solutions to this, and more than 2. Cool. Yep. But I have that's no idea. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to narrow it down.
1: Uh, well, you can think of at least one which doesn't work. So 2 to 63.
0: Yeah, it's 64. Mirror image
1: also doesn't work. So 2 to 62. That's true. Keep going. That's, that's all you have to do. <laughs>
0: I have a hunch the answer is two, you know
1: Yeah, I think you might be right Again, over to you listeners
0: How do we narrow this down? (laughs) This has been our best problem to date and we would like a complete solution
1: Yeah, and by best problem we mean ones which are we can't do immediately but we think we'll be able to do eventually Whereas we've had ones which we do immediately and we've had ones which we will never be able to do
0: Yeah this is the most the most tackleable problem if you have any solutions or, su- or suggestions for us please reach us at twitter at odds and evenings that's O-D-D-S A-N-D evenings we've also got an email address if you wanted to email us that's I believe it's oddsevenings at gmail.com
1: yeah someone already took the gmail
0: somebody took the odds and so we had to yeah. go odds evenings so that's odds evenings I think evenings it's a gambling site oh I bet it will be hmm. well we, we don't do any of that <laughs> business here. even though we're probably going to end up talking about it at some point uh, you can also reach out to me at speakmouthwords if you have any uh, possible solutions or suggestions for this if you have any argument for why it's different than two, if you have a, a, a different form of solution that's not just left right, left right, left right right left right left right left which I think is, is the one that we've come up with then come at me Families of solutions are welcome.
1: Hmm. I, I think when I go away from this episode, I'm going to be thinking about grey code. Are you familiar with grey code? Uh, vaguely. It, it's something that I have come across quite a lot. So, I quite like symmetry in things. Sure. Uh, and so, imagine you tap your left hand on the table. Yeah. Then, to balance yourself out, you uh, you tap your right hand on the table. Sure. But now you've still got a bias because you've done the left first. So to balance yourself out, you could then go right, left. Yeah. Um, But you've still got a bias because in the sequence left, right, right, left, you still started with the left. So you can balance it out by going right, left, left, right. And then you could keep going, but it will carry on infinitely. Each time you're taking everything that's gone before and flipping it, reversing it. Right. Yeah. As someone a bit obsessive, I think these sort of traits are common in mathematicians. Uh, I have to physically stop myself doing this when I fall into this pattern. Years later, I found out that is, is a thing that has a name. It's called the Gray code. And mm. it's used in various patterns. It, it comes up a lot when you're doing Towers of Hanoi
0: analysis. That's the
1: ones with the, the
0: rings around the sticks.
1: Yeah. But bringing up the page for Gray code on Wikipedia, it's got all sorts of complicated computing things that I don't understand. Um, but it, it's a pattern that is so natural that it comes up all over the place.
0: Yeah. You're reminding me of the paradiddle which is a which is a drumming uh, rhythm. I am familiar goes, with
1: paradiddles. It goes because da, 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 da. the yeah. a, a new cafe has opened up in Worcester and in the last week and a half I've been there three times and it's called Paradiddles. Paradiddle. paradiddle. Um, and looking it looking it up, uh, I I realized it was a drumming thing.
0: It is a drumming thing. So if, if you're drumming, uh, a paradiddle is left, left, right, left. This is your hands beating a thing. Left, left, yep. right, left, right, right, left, right. So left, left, right, left. And then the, the flipped version of that. Right, right, left, right. Incidentally, if you're dancing to Gangnam Style, this is also the order in which you lift your legs during the horse riding segment.
1: <laughs> okay. So I'm thinking that um, doing your left and right motorcycle thing on the Cube may prove fruitful
0: yes because you can see pattern in it quite easily it's reduced the dimensionality of this problem to to 1d essentially because you can write the solution down in a line as opposed to conceptually thinking about a three-dimensional space with two-dimensional planes stuck on it which is always a bit harder cool good listener feedback and all that say hi to us
1: Should I do the first one this time? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, So this one, it's not particularly mathsy. It's more of a physics question. So you're someone with sixth degree. I thought you might be able to help. Potentially. Um, Is G rational? I'm going to encourage the most pedantic answer possible on this one. Um, What do uh, you mean by G? I'm going to go with big G, but we can talk about little G as well if you want. So the gravitational constant of the universe. (sighs)
0: <sighs> Is big G rational? Okay, so by rational, of course, we mean can be expressed as one integer divided by another integer.
1: Yep, in their lowest forms. Typically,
0: yep. Um, and I don't have any proof for this at all. One expects a degree of irrationality from our constants.
1: Yes, now, the universe
0: is not particularly very neat. Constants that arrive from nature yep. are invariably irrational, and in okay. some cases transcendental. Yes. Um, and Can you just run the viewers, the listeners through what those two mean?
1: Okay, so uh, an irrational number is one that can't be written as a fraction, so a fraction with integers on the top and the bottom. Transcendental is the next level up. It's that it can't be the solution, the root, of a polynomial with rational coefficients on all of its numbers. So, for example, root 2 is irrational. You can't write it as a fraction. But it isn't transcendental, because it is the solution to the equation x squared minus 2 equals 0, or it's one of the two solutions to that. So something like pi or e They're both transcendental, um, because they're not the roots of polynomials with rational coefficients. Usually with transcendental stuff, we don't. It's really hard to prove. We've only got a few numbers that we haven't proven that for.
0: Right, because it's next to impossible to prove a negative. Yep. Um, If someone says, well, you know, you don't know that there isn't an elephant standing around the backside of that house, and you're not allowed to go and check. Or you can check, and they just say, "Oh, well, the elephant just moved." <laughs> then, cool. um, then, then it's basically impossible to, to, to not prove something. So it's really difficult to prove that these things are transcendental. Because by transcendental we mean not something. Um, so the question is: Is Big G rational? Now, some constants are just—they're just rational because humans choose them to be. Yes. The one that uh, comes to mind for me is uh, the speed of light. Which is a okay. uh, little C, and yep. that initially was irrational. it was just yep. a product of the universe, um, and then we we found that it was super, super close to a whole number of meters per second. yep, so if you uh shot a, a photon, which is a, a light particle, out of a torch, in exactly one second, it would travel a certain number of meters that is really, really close to a whole number. So scientists went hmm how's about that and uh mm-hmm. just decided let's just redefine the meter so yeah. that it uh so that that actually is our number so then we instead of having the meter defined i assume by some kind of rod in france oh. then uh it was then defined by the amount of uh uh distance traveled by light in 1 second or uh. actually in something like Twenty-nine million of a second.
1: Yeah, and and then seconds themselves are defined by um, period of vibration of what is it a cesium atom at a particular temperature and things. These things, apart from the kilogram, which is still a physical object in Paris, uh, they're all defined by just constants of the universe. And actually, um,
0: this this field of the world and this field of study called metrology. Uh, it's the study of measuring things, is I find really interesting, and we're making a lot of progress all the time because the greatest leaps in progress are the ones in which we take a a physical constant or a unit of measurement, yep. and we find a way to describe it as uh, as an aspect of the real world that doesn't rely on some shape being in a in a French laboratory somewhere. Yep. So the kilogram is defined by this, this sphere of uh, some mass somewhere. But if we were to say actually a kilogram is just a bajillion million aluminium atoms, then yep. we could. We totally could. And then what happens then is it means that our units become super easy. Yep. And also physical constants start relating to each other in uh, much more tidy ways when it comes to our
1: uh, our, our units. So what we need to do is clarify the question here. Uh, The question isn't whether big G is rational just universally. It's whether it's rational in the current international standard units. Because I could define a unit system as uh, big G is one and everything else comes from that.
0: Yes. And this is something that particle physicists do all the time, although admittedly not with big G. Particle physicists use something called uh, Planck units. I think it's called Planck units. And in doing so, constants like h, which is a a constant that determines how much energy is in each photon, and and a few other things uh, like voltages and things like that, yep. they all become one. So that in turn means that the maths becomes super easy because you don't have all of these numbers and 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 letters, these extra ones sort of flying around your equations, and you can just get to the heart of what actually matters.
1: You're going to have to remind me a bit. Um I did a bit of quantum in my third year of my degree. So to the listeners, I did a maths degree, whereas Alex did a physics degree. Um, But towards the end of our degrees, there was a bit of overlap of some of these things. I remember h-bar was a thing that I used a lot. Yep. Uh, How's that related to
0: h? Uh, h is uh, h-bar multiplied by 2 pi. Okay. Or more precisely, h-bar is h divided by 2 pi. So the difference there is that when you are a, a high school student, and an early undergraduate, when you're thinking about photons, you like to think about their frequency. Yep. And you say that a red is a certain number of hertz, which means that it's on a little graph of its, uh, of its electric field, it wiggles up and down a certain amount of time per second. And that would be it in hertz. So if you wanted to find out how much energy that photon has, you would multiply that frequency, the amount that it wiggles up and down per second, by h, and you would get uh, that amount of energy now, a little later on, when you start to get a bit more involved in the maths, it's actually much more useful to think about not the frequency, but what's called the angular frequency, which okay. is if you can imagine the line going up and down, not actually being a line randomly going up and down, but it being the, the height of a dot on the end of a circle that was going round a certain amount of times, yep. then, uh, then it becomes much more sensible to think about this thing called h-bar because the angular frequency is just the uh, the frequency multiplied by two pi, so okay, um, I can see where yeah. that's going to come so from. Then, then, then you start to use h bar in that way. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um. So, let's. Shall we try and get a big ha- uh, handle on big G? Yes. Ha- what's our way in here? So let's talk about where big
0: G occurs. Okay. Big G is most familiar to people who have done a little bit of physics, in the form F equals minus big G MM over R squared. Minus? Uh, yes, has to be minus because they attract each other. Okay. Um, yep. And okay. Uh, we think about big G in, in that form only and so big G is the, is the number that dictates uh, how strongly planets pull towards each other or particles pull towards each other or people pull towards each other or my favorite, cruise ships in a dock pull towards each other very slightly <laughs> if they're set yep. next to each other. What we'd want to do is you would want to find two large objects yep. that you know their mass very well and yep. you know how far apart they are and you can see how quickly they move towards each other or something like that or yep. you can measure the force that they're, that they're pulling towards each other, say, with springs or something, and then you can work out uh, big G. And I'm sure there's much more sophisticated ways to measure it.
1: So the problem being that you've got lots of other forces acting on them, so you want something fairly isolated. So I'm imagining it's done on a, like a larger scale, planets around suns or suns around galaxies or that sort of thing.
0: Y- yes, yeah. Yeah. I've seen it done in a lab with um, some very sort of dainty strings and tiny sticks and things and you sort of leave something for a week and see how much closer it is at the end in, inside a completely sealed box and stuff like that. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's it's much easier to do it on a very, very large scale because uh, things get easier to measure. Now, the problem is that our measurement of forces is yep. sufficiently imprecise that it would be impossible to tell whether G was uh, irrational or not okay um, there is a complete outside chance uh, that it's rational, yep, but we really 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 just can't know and even if even if we measured G and it came out to now I don't know how the actual size of G I think it's something in the oh I'm about to stick my foot in my mouth but I think right, it's some, somewhere in it? the range of 10 to the minus
1: thirteen uh, um, I, I've got it up oh yeah what is it uh, 6.674 times 10 to the minus 11. 11, okay. So
0: even if we were to measure it and it were to go, did you say 6.64? Uh,
1: 6.674.
0: Even if we were to measure it and it went 6.67000000, 000, 000, uh, yep. much like proving the negative with the transcendental numbers, it's really difficult to prove the negative with this physical constant because you okay. can't really logic your way around it. Now, and
1: and as soon as you've got a plus-minus in there, because there's a rational number between any two irrational numbers and an irrational number between any two rational numbers, then literally any degree of uh, variance is enough to throw it off just yeah. measuring it.
0: Yeah, if, if if you have any amount of error in the slightest, then you can't possibly know. But, as we've done in the past, when things get super, super close to something, it may be possible to tweak a couple of measurements here and there such that yep. it is but i'm not clever enough to know whether that will throw something else completely off like if we then tweak something there does that then ruin some other nice tidy constant that we have somewhere
1: so i've, I've been thinking a bit, a bit about Planck length about um how it's all a bit discreet when you zoom in far enough yeah kind I, of, I'm, yeah. I'm about to use uh terms w- which are probably beyond my uh, scope as a physicist. So it, this is why I'm asking you the question. It feels like when we're taking these measurements, as you get closer in, things become discrete. You have Planck lengths, and you have uh, like the smallest mass, and that sort of thing. And it feels like it's an equation where everything within it is discrete. And if we've got a whole lot of discrete things divided by some other discrete things... And that feels like, even if it is horrific, that we would get some actual uh, fraction out. A
0: few caveats. Okay. So, first of all, the Planck-length digital physics theory that everything becomes a bit like a computer at the basis base doesn't automatically mean that we're living on a grid or anything okay. like that. Um, secondly, in our... In our Planck units and things like that, uh, which are these the the units you use to to measure things at the very very small, we still don't have those infinitely precisely measured. Okay. So uh, that h is uh, is known as Planck's constant, and that is the uh, the constant that is pretty prevalent in in most of these uh, most of these Planck lengths and Planck energies and Planck frequencies and so on. Yep. We don't have that measured to Nearly enough precision to to, to to determine this kind of thing, but okay. you're right in the premises that if the world does become very discreet and it's like we're living on a grid at the at the, at the complete bottom level and yep. say we're in some kind of computer and everything is is defined by some kind of um,
1: yeah. a frame rate and a pixel size and yeah yeah.
0: And and say that, well, everything's measured by what's called a float, which is a particular way of storing numbers, but has a smallest possible number. Then, yep. yeah, you're right. When things get super, super down to that level, then one can imagine that all of our uh, constants are uh, do become rational.
1: It's still an open problem as to whether time is discrete, right?
0: I have no idea and what I don't want to do is start spreading pseudoscience
1: okay
0: um, but much with all these other problems can you, can you prove it's not? we don't know because at yeah. some point with the thing about reality is once you start getting more and more precise you don't know when it ends and intuition and Occam's razor would kind of tell us that it's probably just irrational all the way down yeah. but of course you don't have any way to really know yeah
1: most numbers are. Yeah, it'd be very I, strange to
0: have something that's exactly this billion-digit number divided by this billion-digit number. <laughs>
1: uh, it's one of those weird things that if you take all the real numbers and you pick one at random, then with probability 1, it is an irrational number. And yet between any two irrational numbers, there's a rational number. And between any two rational numbers, there's an irrational number. But they're different sizes of infinity. Yes. Yeah. The, the number of rational numbers is the same as the number of integers, because you can number them.
0: Right. The number uh, of rational numbers is the same as the number... Yes, yes, this is
1: yeah. true. Yeah. Um, whereas the size of infinity, the cardinality of it for irrational numbers, is, is up. It's infinitely bigger than the other infinity. We had to be a bit careful about the language of these things but we can use words like dense so if you the irrational numbers are dense within the real numbers like almost every one of them is irrational Right. so yeah do we have a, uh, a conclusion on these things I think we can, we're basically saying it's undecidable
0: g is for now irrational because we can't define it as one whole number divided by another whole number Just because it's got error in it.
1: I'm not happy with our conclusion that it's irrational.
0: Can we say it's irrational until proven otherwise?
1: I, that seems a very science way of doing
0: things. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, then we'll say we don't know.
1: Undecidability, yep. Just to give us some nice thing that we can cling on to, while I was looking these up, small g, which is uh, the gravity on Earth, related concept, Um, I've got the Wikipedia page up, there's a legal definition. Small yes. g is nine point eight zero six six five meters per second squared exactly,
0: and this is because small g was originally defined as the strength of gravity uh, at the center of Paris. Yeah, um, and so if you have a exactly precise definition of small g, then that means that you can go on to um, you can go on to pick the exact location in Paris where that's true. <laughs> But now you kind of have me thinking. Yep. If you had two kilogram masses that were one meter apart from each other. Yep. Oh, no, but we're not talking about two kilogram masses. We're talking about the Earth. And we don't know the Earth's mass exactly. So actually, the Earth's mass is defined by small g in this case. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Interesting. I have one for you shoot I've been going on reddit this website called reddit that many of the listeners may have heard of for the last seven or eight years yep reddit is a website on which people submit content and then people vote on whether it's good or not and they vote it up or they vote it down and um, and the good stuff floats to the top and then very slowly dies away and the bad stuff is, is at the bottom So by doing that, theoretically, you can filter out the bad stuff and you can leave the good stuff. Uh, What actually happens is, uh, as an aside, it filters out the unpopular stuff and leaves the popular stuff. Um, And human nature dictates that actually what you get is the comfortable. You filter in the comfortable and you filter out the uncomfortable. Nevertheless, it doesn't matter the score that these things land on or why they land on that particular score for this particular problem. Lately, Reddit has been getting more popular. Over time, more and more users have been, have been coming to it. So initially, when I first started using it, the one would expect the something with the highest amount of votes across all of Reddit to have a score of about a 1,000. So let's say 1,500 people voted it up and 500 people voted it down. Yep. Uh, back when I was doing my work on futurism, and was making web content around futurism, I had the top vote, the top content of all time on a section called Futurology, and that only had 150. Nowadays, if you go back to Futurology, the top thing of all time there probably has about Um, 10,000. So Reddit's been getting more popular, uh, so much so that they had to change the way that they count numbers. If something had 10,125, it wouldn't show 10,125. Yeah, nowadays it shows ten point one K. Yep. Just to fit the number in. Um so this is this is kind of interesting. If you imagine a world in which the the users didn't increase in number, then you can probably think let's let's model it, you can probably imagine that the net votes on any particular topic probably roughly fall into some kind of normal distribution. Okay. Yep. Or that they fall into some kind of skewed normal distribution that takes into account that zero is uh is as 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 low as you can really go, and it doesn't show you negative numbers for uh for things that are downvoted too far.
1: Yeah, okay.
0: At any rate, you can think of it as a normal distribution. And so there is some probability if you go on the highest voted posts of all time, there is some fixed probability that Actually, it's probably not fixed. Now that I think about it, and diminishes over time. That yep. the the highest voted post, or maybe in within the top twenty-five highest voted posts of all time, there is a certain probability that that has come from like the last week or so, or say the last month. Okay. Yep. However, the user base isn't fixed, and the user base is increasing over time. So, yep. I'm very interested in what that does to the the chances that the top X number of posts has content in it from uh, the last week or so.
1: I see what you mean, yeah. Because if you
0: think about it, it's probably a normal distribution that's gradually sliding to the right.
1: Uh, I'm going to um, talk about your assumption of normal distribution there. Yep. Um, I think the virality of posts plays into this so because we're talking about the very top end this is going to be a, a, a quibble that actually matters imagine you've got most of your posts which are normally distributed but you get some which are so popular that people spread them on to further things they, they get a certain critical mass like things which are doing well that make it to the top page, where a lot of people are only going to read the front page. And so those things get upvoting more often. And so what you get there is a feedback loop. And what a feedback loop means is you've got an exponential in there somewhere. So I think if you were to model um, all posts of all time, how many votes they got, you'd have the normal distribution main hump, and then you'd have an incredibly long tail with uh, things getting massive numbers of votes at the top end. And because it's just the top end we're talking about, uh, I don't think a normal distribution is a good model here.
0: Right. And I guess this is kind of exemplified by um, the most downvoted comment of all time, which was by some EA developers, and it is about 10 times as downvoted as the second most downvoted thing of all time. So... These things, not only do they kind of have fat tails, and by that I mean there is a higher chance that it deviates away from average uh, than you you would typically expect if you were doing something like, say, flipping 100 coins. Um, Not only do they have fat tails, but there is a point where something gets pushed onto the front page, like you say. And actually in Reddit's algorithm, typically what it does is it only allows one thing from each subreddit each section of reddit each topic area to hit the yep. front page at any one time yep unless something's completely undeniable let's say it's, it's it's already picked the one for the day on the topic of basket weaving and then someone posts a really really good basket and then that gets that gets voted up a lot then it'll then it'll compromise and it'll, it'll let another one on but typically it only chooses one as well
1: yeah, I can see. I'm on the top uh, 25 of all time, just from across Reddit. Um, and it looks like some subreddits dominate this. So, picks and gaming yep. have a lot of the top ones ever.
0: What I'm questioning is not for the totality of Reddit, yep. but for any one particular section. So, if say if you go on mathematics, okay, and have a look on there.
1: Oh, math. Okay, so I'm on the RMAF uh, top 25 of all time. Just looking at the dates that these things are posted. Yeah. Going down, we've got six months, seven months, two months, five months, one year, two months, two years, three months. This is, is supporting your hypothesis. Number 15 is only 17 days ago. Right. Whereas r/math as a subreddit, I, I'm not sure how I can find out the age of the subreddit itself. But I imagine it's one of the longer existing subreddits on Reddit, so it must be seven or eight years old.
0: It does tell you, yeah, a community for nine years. It was created on Thursday, January the twenty-fourth, at ten p.m. London time in two thousand
1: and eight. Ah, uh, you just dated our podcast um, years into the future. People will be able to work out when we're talking from.
0: Oh, that's true. Oh, wow! Now you know it's created. In, uh, this podcast was created in twenty seventeen. <laughs> Um, because it could be in the future that actually Reddit doesn't exist anymore and so that's
1: totally dated our podcast as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, uh, gravity will still be a thing. That's true. We've got to cover it for this episode. But yeah, so your your comment that there are more people on Reddit just generally now, I, I think is the main factor at play here.
0: There is some kind of distribution that's shifting to the right and by doing so, it's making the highest uh, voter posts be the be much more recent than before, and this all kind of sounds like common sense. And there's probably a lot of people going, "Oh, God, just get on to the next question already, get on to the next topic." But it's inter- it's just interesting to think about because you can imagine these things as if you can imagine a um, uh, a distribution that's sitting on a, a number scale and yep. that's kind of lighting up uh, every time a, a post is is posted, and then every time it lights up, it kind of burns that onto a static scale. Yep. And it's shifting along. Then uh then it's kind of fun to think about the uh the extent to which it's uh it's <laughs> forward tail pushes on into the future.
1: Yeah, it's almost just a permanently on LED. Yeah. This is one of these things that just as global population goes up and more of the population has access to the internet because this is one of the currently one of the biggest uh websites on the internet. Uh the more people you have, the more publishing happens. I'm not sure that's true of other mediums. So, if you think something like uh, literature, there are a lot more people in the world, so there should be an exponential number of classic novels coming out. If you think back a couple of hundred years ago, some of the best novels ever. Well, just the sheer number of people are alive in the world today, we should be having things like uh, Rebecca and Emma being written constantly at this point, surely. And yet we don't. Maybe we just don't hear about them. Or maybe uh, the demand for the content, well, there's only so many people that are going to read classic novels. And so they only publish the top, whatever percentage it is. Whereas on Reddit, everyone can post and there's no uh, check there. There's no editing house.
0: Right. But we do have Harry Potter and Kurt Vonnegut and Steinbeck. And there's this concept of a modern classic. That comes out of that.
1: So, um, uh, what's the population in, say, um, eighteen hundred of I the world? No,
0: things stayed pretty close to a billion for a while, didn't they? And then yep. they suddenly flew away. Yeah,
1: I, I'm going to guess about half a billion. Yeah, um, we have plenty of classic novels which remain classics that people still study now from that era, but we've got many times that population in the world. Say we were at, what is it seven billion? At the moment, eight uh, yeah. We We should have 16 times as many books coming out of equal greatness right. as that period in history.
0: But do we have quite the same number of gatekeepers and central channels through which uh, these things can be distributed? Anybody can publish themselves on Amazon, but nobody's going to hear about it. Yep. whereas before when there were, was there was like there was Oxford University <laughs> Press and there was Cambridge University Press and there was only a certain number of, uh, of of publishers in the world then people would just pay attention to those publishers so I would be interested in the in the ratio of publishers and bookshops and things like that to the population because that may dictate what gets picked up as a, as, as a classic and what doesn't and yep. actually um, a lot of the stuff that gets super popular for whatever reason. They don't have the same academic acclaim as yep. the classics. And presumably, and this is a big assumption because I don't know much about these things, but presumably those classics were popular in their timeframe.
1: Yeah. I mean, we can come up with examples that weren't. But yes, I think for the most part they were.
0: Interesting. So hmm. books are not like Reddit, is what we've learned.
1: Yes. Because Reddit
0: <laughs> is, has a single channel that pays good attention to everything equally, algorithmically. Yep. Whereas yep. publishing has a few people who think that they know what the population likes and publish based on that.
1: I imagine they're quite good at it. There's a feedback loop there.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely, yes. If you're the, if you're the person who, who didn't pass on Harry Potter, I'm sure you've made quite a lot of money. Hmm. And people will hire you as well to, uh, to find the next big thing.
1: Which is obviously this podcast. Alex, are you familiar with Conway's Game of Life? I am familiar with Conway's Game of Life. Do you want to give a brief description of Conway's Game of Life to our our listeners?
0: Yes, and correct me where I get it wrong. Okay. So, Conway's Game of Life is what is called a cellular automata. By this, what we mean is there is a grid of squares that are filled or not filled. And in some cellular automata, they're filled by different colours. But in Conway's Game of Life, things are either on or off. And we typically represent that in black and white, although uh, you can obviously use whatever color you want, as long as the two are distinguishable. You could even yeah. do the two different shapes, but then it's, everything starts looking like Dwarf Fortress. <laughs> so, in Conway's Game of Life, a square in a grid is either on or off. Uh, if a square has a certain amount of squares around it, and by this we're considering uh, all eight squares around it, I think. Yep. If there's a certain amount that are on, then it will switch on.
1: If there are a certain amount that are off, then it will die away. So if a cell is currently alive, then in the next time step, it will stay alive if it has exactly two or three neighbours. So if it had more than three, then uh, it's overpopulated and it dies off, say of starvation. If it had fewer than two, then it, I don't know, dies of cold from underpopulation. Uh, But a dead cell becomes uh, a new birth of a live cell if it has exactly three neighbours. These numbers seem arbitrary. They're chosen because it makes an interesting game. If everything is uh, born and just allowed to remain alive, then the whole grid just fills really quickly. And if everything is killed off too fast, then again, you, you just have a really boring game but they found that these numbers uh, are ones which created a weird amount of chaos.
0: And it is weird. And if you ever look at it, it looks strange and it comes up with lots of interesting different features and and phenomenon. And we will post a link in the show notes to a uh, place where you can play around with Conway's Game of Life. Because you will start discovering it and if you're like us, you will start to become obsessed with it if you're not
1: already. Uh, Alex and I had an evening where we played with it manually using uh, white and black stones on a go board, and then it quickly gets to the point where your patterns grow bigger than the go board. And I think that that's the purest way to be introduced to Conway's Game of Life, to just play. So there are a few uh, basic structures in it, so one of them, if you imagine you had four on things in a 2 by 2 square, then each of those has exactly three neighbours, so each of them will survive, And each of the square is around it, all the dead squares. Well, there's none which has exactly three neighbours, so no more will get born. And so that block will stay stable forever. It won't do anything. Now, there are all sorts of different things which are stable like that, and you can make huge structures out of them. You also have some other interesting things. Imagine three on things in a line. The middle one has exactly two neighbours, so it's going to survive to the next time step. Both of the end ones only have one neighbour each, so they're going to die. But at the same time, the square just above the centre one and just below the centre one, they have exactly three alive neighbours, and so they're going to become born. And so after one time step, instead of three in a horizontal line, you're going to end up with three in a vertical line?
0: Yeah, and it presumably will flip straight back again.
1: Yeah. So next time step, you get back to where you were before. We call it a blinker, uh, and it, it's an oscillator period too. And again, there's lots of oscillators, something quite complicated, but they have all sorts of different time periods. Now, all of this is just uh, introduction to Commerce Game of Life stuff. What I wanted to think about is imagine you have a grid of these on and off squares. Let's uh, let's imagine you put you're doing it in something like Minecraft, and you uh, you put a block wherever there was a live square and there wasn't a block wherever uh, there was a dead square. So you've got a big 2D plane of these um, alive or dead cubes. Sure. After one time step of iterating Conway's Game of Life, what we could do is we could represent uh, the new alive and dead squares um, as the next plane up, and then we could keep doing that. So each slice, each plane, horizontal plane, is one slice of time so you could see Conway's Game of Life emerging but in 3D yeah so it's a bit like you, the the dimensions of this the, uh, the grid you've got your x direction and your y direction and then the time direction going up yes uh, what we could think of is what these objects look like in this kind of 3D and this 3D is two spatial dimensions and a time dimension yeah yep in the same way that we could imagine you as, I mean, you, you are a 3D object, uh, but you're also travelling through time. So you could think of yourself as this long centipede-like creature uh, if you took all the different time snaps of you going through history. Yeah.
0: And I think i sort of curled up in my house quite a lot. Yeah. And and going to and fro from work quite a lot.
1: Yeah. It, it, like a, a thread um, sewing yourself around London. Yeah. Um, and other people are these similar kind of 3D lines. I, it, that centipede analogy, you mentioned Kurt Vonnegut earlier, uh, is straight from Slaughterhouse-Five. Uh, hmm. Yeah. Nice linking here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what we could do, is it, because it's much easier to get our grip on, is imagine what these... Uh, 3D structures look like in Conway's Game of Life in a typical game imagine a block going uh, through time so a block being four uh, on cubes in a square what shape is that going to make? it's going to be a big old long line yeah you've got this kind of square prism going up into the sky forever Yeah, and all of the stable states are just whatever the stable state was as a prism going up what does the blinker do?
0: It would kind of look a little funny, but it would be this kind of thing that kind of looks a bit like a vertebrae or like a spine.
1: Yeah, I was kind of thinking of it as a ladder, but yeah, uh, a sticklebrook. And again, with these oscillators, you'd have this uh, repeating pattern as you went up it. I mean, there are lots of oscillators with lots of different time periods, but you'd have uh, just this repeated pattern going up almost like a prism forever. There's one shape which I thought would be quite interesting to think about. The glider. Yep. Do you want to explain what the glider
0: is? So the glider is a particular shape that travels diagonally. And it just kind of flips back and forth. And uh, actually, how many states does it have?
1: Kind of two, but it rotates as it does it.
0: Right, okay. So it has four states. Yeah. So it has four different sort of frames, if you can imagine it as an animation. And it, and it moves diagonally in, in, in any particular direction. Yeah. But there's a, there's a... I mean, that's the that's the most fundamental glider. There are... The, the others... Are they called spaceships or are they called gliders as well? Uh,
1: they're called spaceships. So the glider is the smallest spaceship. Okay. Yeah. So if you imagine it snapshots through time, then you'd start off with this glider. It would slowly travel off in this, this diagonal direction. With almost period four, you get something that if there was gravity working here, the whole structure would tip over because you've got this diagonal line traveling through space.
0: Yeah, but that is interesting. It as the diagonal. gliders
1: interact with other things, so maybe you've got a uh, a glider heading towards a block and interacting with it in some way. That's normal Conway's Game of Life. If you imagine in 3D, you've got this block, so the four squares going up as a this tower, and then this glider. Um, going in a diagonal direction towards it until at the top they have a little bit of chaos and then something results. Hmm.
0: Yeah, and then some kind of other burst and presumably any uh, anytime anything hits something else you quite often end up with these squares and these and these uh, oscillators and so on. Yeah. So if the two if two hit each other either, it, either something completely dies out or you're left with something relatively static that just
1: yep. keeps going. Yeah. Um, because you can fire the glider at the square in ways that interact in lots of different ways, you, there's lots of different results that could come from it. Hmm. So, like, one of them is it moves the block a couple of places. When people are designing computers in Conway's Game of Life, they use that as a memory system.
0: Right. Oh, and by the way, people do design computers in Conway's in, in Game of Life. And they design all sorts of other things. And there's lots of fascinating stuff that comes out of it. You can calculate pi... You can actually, you can, you can model Conway's Game of Life within Conway's Game of Life. Just a really yep. big version of
1: it. I've um, got a video that I quite like. Um, that I often show my students with that one. I'll, I'll put that one in the show notes as well. You have to appreciate,
0: those of you who aren't familiar with Conway's Game of Life, how obsessive people get over this and how deep they've gone to the point where such amazing creations have, have been built in it. So this is reminding me of something. This is reminding me of something we have in physics called Feynman Diagrams. Wiggly lines. Yeah, so these are lines that represent particles and when the lines touch each other that it represents a interaction between two particles. Uh, A good example for this is you have two electrons and they kind of come close to each other and they pass a photon between each other to indicate that they're saying, hey, stay away from me, which is how reality works, and then they move away again. So you can kind of represent that as this H, kind of bendy H shape. Yep. Where the two straight lines come close to each other then there's a wiggly line between them and then they move away again if this were sort of minecraft or some other situation in which you could look at these things from the side they would kind of look it would kind of look a bit like a Feynman diagram because you'd have these two lines that would come together they would interact in some way and then something would result yes this is how we think about particle physics interesting thank you for that one So lately, I've been getting into Twitch TV. Um, okay. and Twitch TV is a website um, which people generally watch uh, people streaming. And by streaming, okay. I mean they are playing video games or it's them in front of their webcam or talking or something like that. But either way, it's this kind of new form of TV that's come after YouTube. And actually, it was around for a while. Like There was, there was live streams for a while, but it really took the explosion in gaming content for it to take off. Of, so th- um,
1: the the way I'm familiar with it, and I imagine a lot of people are because it became a bit famous, particularly Reddit, is uh, Twitch Plays Pokemon.
0: Yes. So there was a channel called Twitch Plays Pokemon, in which there was a robot playing Pokemon in the. It was the first generation Pokemon, either red or blue. Yeah. And it was taking instructions from the chat as to what it should do next. People would vote on go up or down or left or right, and so on. On these streams, you will see the number of people online now or the number of people watching right now. And this is something I've actually I've been thinking about this problem for a very long period of time, closing in on a decade now. What do you need to know in addition to the online now figure to determine the number of unique users in the past particular period of time? Mm. So you have the number of people that are online. Yep. And some people are going to turn up and some people are going to leave at any one time. It's like one of these it's like one of these bus problems where three people get on the bus and four people get off, and then five people get on and two people get off, you know, things like that. That's going on constantly.
1: So we could put make some bounds straight away. So the uh lower bound of the unique visitors is just whatever the highest online null figure was. Yeah. Because it could be that everyone, that, that was literally everyone, and everyone else dipped in or out at some point, but they were all counted at that maximum time.
0: Assuming that nobody was watching on two devices at the same time.
1: But even that yeah. would be yeah, let's count negligible.
0: Let's, let's forget about that.
1: Yeah. upper bound. is it literally... Oh, okay, so every time it changed... Every time it changed upwards, you could add that on. You could say every time it was a new person, it wasn't someone rejoining. That would
0: be the upper bound, yeah. Um, let us assume, for the purposes of the problem, that the viewing now number changes instantaneously and that it doesn't batch them together.
1: So that that will give you perfect information on both the upper and lower bound. Right. More than that, you need some way of differentiating between the different people coming in. Yeah. So, say, IP address. But as soon as you have everyone's IP address, that's unique anyway.
0: Right, yeah, yeah. Kind of.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I guess
0: if you count the number of ins, yeah. then all you would need to know is the probability that that person that's coming in is a returning viewer. Yeah. Because, I mean, you don't... Let's, let us assume that you can't check each one of those IP address going in and out.
1: So you could build up an estimate if you um, did have some sort of platform where you could measure IP addresses. Yes. So if you had um, any Twitch that you were watching, you could build up a number, which was the ratio of unique to upper bound. And you could assume that that was constant across all Twitch videos. So you can measure it on one of the smaller ones. But I think you are going to have to measure this thing by IP address at some point, because otherwise there's just not enough information.
0: Yeah, you need to get some, some raw data, or you could survey people. How many people would you need to survey in order to get a good estimate of the probability and therefore a good estimate of the total number of uniques?
1: On my website, um, alericsteven.com, in the back end, because I do it through Squarespace, they have a whole lot of stats stuff built into the back. Sure, yeah. And so I get raw uh, page count thing. I also get an estimated unique visitors, but it it literally uses the word estimated. Uh So I imagine somewhere in Squarespace Central they can do a similar calculation. How often do people usually return on these sort of things? But that, my website does look at IP addresses.
0: And so the reason it has an estimate is because some people have what's called a dynamic IP address and it changes, or they might look at your website from both work and home, for example. Yep. And so that'll register as a different IP address. So what it's taking is an estimate of the, the different IP addresses and what the likelihood of that being the same as another IP address is. Yep. Yeah. So it's literally just go out, the solution is just go out and gather the data.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I think it has to be. Um, yeah. But this estimate thing, I, I think would be fine. So it, if you've got the larger the number of people, the more homogeneous it's going to be. A, a chemistry analogy here. Modelling what five atoms of hydrogen are doing is hard estimating what all of the atoms of hydrogen are going to do within one sealed beaker is easy because on average they do what you expect them to.
0: This is the uh, principle behind the Foundation series of novels by um, Isaac Asimov. Isaac Asimov,
1: yeah, that's exactly where I was building to. Yeah. Um, is, uh, Foundation is my favourite book. The idea in that is that humans are unpredictable, But if you have lots of humans, then generally as a society or as a planet or as a solar system, say, then they're going to, on average, do pretty much the same thing. And it's a a series of novels set either 20,000 years or 50,000 years into the future. He was really inconsistent because he wrote them over four and a half decades. So he kept retconning stuff. That The population of the entire human race is massive. And so, on average... This field called Psychohistory is developed, which uh, manages to make very accurate pre- predictions about what's going to happen in the future, on average, for humans. Twitch is less big than that, but I imagine it's fairly homogenous.
0: Yeah. If you, if you have a channel that has about 10,000 viewers or so at any one time, so this happens in large tournaments of video games or card games or something like that, or, or indeed Twitch plays Pokemon then you could yeah there's this level of um, homogeneity going on there but for smaller channels it's much harder and as always statistics gets really difficult with a small number of things because you don't hit these statistical limits um and things vary quite a lot so if you can imagine a channel that's um one person and they have about four dedicated fans or at that level they're probably friends they probably just chat and they just come on online and they'll leave and come back and leave and come back loads of times because it's just like just dipping in and out as opposed to something larger where you can probably just leave it on in the background. So there's, yes. there's some kind of cultural respect thing going on there where with a friend, it feels like you can uh, you, you if you're not paying attention, then you have to leave in order to indicate you're not there. But with a big tournament or something, you can just leave it on. Cool. So, that leads us into what we do at the end of every episode, which is where we talk about how satisfied we were with uh, how far we got. So, what was the first problem we did today?
1: Uh, so, the first thing we talked about was gravity, whether big G was rational. How do you feel we did on the 1 I feel to ten? quite
0: satisfied. I know that you don't.
1: No, I'm fairly satisfied on this one as well. So, 7.
0: Yeah. I would also like to somewhere in the vicinity of a seven, just because I know there's a lot of stuff that I'm not knowledgeable enough about.
1: Yep. Yeah. Probably irrational, but we're never going to be able to measure it, or well, we probably won't be able to measure it accurately enough, because any variation in measurement is enough to not be able to say whether it's rational or irrational. Right, yeah. So, yeah, probably undecidable.
0: The next one was considering the top posts of all time on reddit um, in particular subreddits and there wasn't really a question here but it was more a consideration of the fact that recently the top posts have been the most recent ones because the population has been increasing yep uh i don't Um, think there's anything to be satisfied or not satisfied about that's just a bit of a a little bit of a mental curio
1: well yeah Uh, it's a phenomena phenomenon you're happy as a scientist to point things out and say hey look at that
0: yeah, that's the way it is.
1: <laughs> so, five.
0: Um, yeah, I'll go, go five, five as well. <laughs> just because uh, I would really like to know what the distribution is, and, and it's, of course, it's pretty much impossible to know. Yep.
1: Then we had. I feel like I should stop calling it the human centipede section. Just, uh, just but... keep going. <laughs> just keep going. <laughs> the, the game of life, Conway's game of life for 3D, and then we talked about uh, Alex and I being these. 3D human centipedes, centipedes going through time,
0: centipedes. Um, I think we got we got quite a good ways into that. Uh, I feel like that was that that was pretty good.
1: Yeah, I, I'm I'm happy. I'm going eight on that one.
0: Uh, yeah, I think I think I'm about as satisfied as as I was with the with the gravity one.
1: It's one of those ones that you can just keep thinking about. Um, I think I might have a play around actually in Minecraft about making some of these um glider interactions yeah. I, I just want to see what they look like
0: yeah i think uh, another area that i'd like to to think about there is, and this is where i thought you were going with it whereas if is is if you set up a particular area in which to do conway's game of life and then if it's minecraft one of the things that happens with the sand block is it all falls down at yep. the end, so it doesn't stay hovering in the air i would like to see conway's game of life where you look at the, the density of uh, of whether something stayed alive or not and whether or, any interesting patterns come out of that
1: not even talking about the sandblock but whether the things would remain connected yeah like the glider i i think it's all connected through the 3d but my imagination in these things isn't good enough and i'm sure there are shapes that do have blocks which is just not connected on
0: yeah exactly okay and then the last topic we talked about was the online now and i feel very satisfied this is something i've been thinking about for a while uh, I remember asking uh, a bunch of my uh, cleverest high school chums this in a pub once and then we went, oh yeah, yeah, you need to know return rates. And then mm. that was about it and that's all we got. But I like the idea of thinking about the upper bounds, lower bounds and very specifically I like the idea of thinking about all, that all you need to know is everybody who's come in. So you need to know the number of times it's ticked upwards and I just apply a probability to that and you're you're golden, you've sorted.
1: Okay, yeah I, I'm happy as well. Oh, I'm right. straight
0: 10, 10 that one. That one's Hmm. uh, fully satisfied with that answer. Seven. You're sevening it? Yeah. What's wrong?
1: I mean, it's... When we have something which is undeniably proven for all cases, and you've uh, done all of the sub-bits, and you've got exactly what the distribution is and things, that's a ten. Okay. Um, So
0: pure maths problems only in the future. If we want tens.
1: Yeah. Um, (laughs) I, I am determined to make these numbers over... Uh, the time of the show be uniformly distributed. But wow. I haven't been writing them down along the way, and that seems like cheating. So I'm I'm partially marking myself as a human. When we get say a hundred episodes in, hopefully, how close to uniformly distributed these are.
0: Well, you better start getting some harder problems because uh, this was a pretty good week. <laughs> good. Well, cool. thank you for joining us this evening. I, as ever, have been Alex Mel. You can find me on Twitter at, at @speakmouthwords. With me, as always, was Aloic Stephen, And you can find him at aloicsteven.com. That's true. .com. It's
1: Stephen spelt Step Hen.
0: Step Hen. And you can find the Twitter account to this particular podcast itself over at um, twitter.com forward slash odds and evenings. And uh, we will see you next time. Thank you very much. Good night. Bye-bye.